0: Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's going to happen in 100 years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now.
1: Uh, You know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around
0: one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had.
1: People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Carlin, and welcome to our second episode in this series on renewables. Despite the abundance of renewable energy resources in Australia and huge growth in solar and wind farms and hydro, getting it into our homes is a challenge. An old, complex energy grid, our island nation status, and the complexity of demand versus supply means we still have some work to do. But Monash engineers and scientists are confident we can solve these problems. Fehrouz Bahrani works on grid integration. That's how we all get the valuable energy produced by Australia's sun, wind and waves into the grid and powering our homes and businesses. Roger Dargaville is researching pumped hydro and he explains how it can help take us all the way with renewables. Joining us now is Behrouz Bahrani.
2: My name is Dr. Behruz Bahrani. I'm a lecturer at Electrical and Computer System Engineering Department at Monash University. Uh, my main re- field of research and expertise is uh, renewable energy integration into the grid converters, power electronic converters and their control and their application in the wider area of the grid.
0: Behriz Bahrani, welcome.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for coming in. Imagine the world continues on as it is with Australia in particular not being very um, active in taking on renewable energy sources. What do we look like in 50 years?
2: So if you want to like stop now with the amount of renewable energies that we've got, the mix at the moment, I believe for 2019, was around 20% of renewables, give or take, and 80% of, of fossil fuel. With that, we will be in actually a lot of trouble. What we saw last year, um, beginning of this year, 2020, massive bushfires in Australia, that is one important consequence of climate change for us in Australia. Of course, we are blessed in terms of renewable energy resources, but we are one of the most vulnerable uh, countries in the world when it comes to climate change. So we are actually feeling the pain. Probably we will be one of the first countries feeling this pain. You know, Uh, other countries in the world, well, look at the U.S. They've got some problems in California. The bushfires in California are probably as catastrophic as ours. Maybe ours is worse but we will be one of the first countries uh, feeling the pain. So if we don't do anything, 2050 can be so dark for us. It's not only bushfires though, we have climate change affecting so many other things. Climate change can affect your agriculture, climate change can affect temperature, temperature brings uh, severe uh, weather events, Uh, it can cause uh, sea level rise, all sorts of problems. So without having further action, Um, And if we want to stop at this level that we are today, the future won't be so bright.
0: There's a sad irony in it, isn't it, that, uh, as you said, Australia is particularly vulnerable to climate change. And yet we seem to be doing so little compared to other nations uh, in regards to uptake of renewables. Why is that? Is it that renewables just aren't reliable enough?
2: Well, first of all... um, I can't tell that we are not doing very well compared to other countries, depending who we are comparing ourselves with. Um, For example, um, when it comes to solar energy, we are actually doing good. Solar energy, um, last couple of years, we've been, well, per capita, of course. Per capita, we've been among top three nations in the world. That's actually great news. It is great. For solar, we are doing very, very well. Again, it's only a comparison to other countries, Whether what other countries are doing is enough or not, that's another story.
0: So we could be third in a bad race. (laughs) Exactly.
2: We could be third in a bad race. Well, the best country at the moment in terms of uh, solar energy uptake is Germany. They are doing actually pretty well. Uh, We are not very far behind them, though. Again, when I'm talking about the race, it's just per capita. Of course, there are countries like China. It's a massive country. Uh, They've got a lot of uh, solar, a lot of wind generation. But per capita, we are not doing terrible. Wind, the same uh, scenario, we are not doing terrible, uh, like maybe for the wind, maybe we're not top three, but maybe I believe, uh, well, we can have a look at statistics, but we are probably around in top 10 or so. So we are not doing terrible um, um, comparatively, but in an absolute measure, yes, the whole world is not doing great.
0: So why then, if we are only at 20% with renewables, 80% is still from fossil fuels, why is that? Why is there not been a greater uptake of renewable?
2: Well, um, a bunch of reasons. Uh, The first one would be financial reasons, because somebody needs to come and pay for your new installations. Installation for solar farms, wind farms, rooftop solars, incentives from the government is required – an appetite from industry, uh, private sector to come and develop these. So technology is not really a massive burden at the moment for some regions, but I'll get to that, that where the technology is a barrier as well. So finance is one big problem, that we don't uh, have a lot of incentives for developers to come and develop. Because if you're a developer and if you want to, for example, develop a farm or develop an energy generation plant, you want to, like, earn money, right? Most of the developers, their main incentive is earning money. So if they look at their solar uh, farm project or wind farm project, and if they compare it with another uh, investment of any type, they say, okay, why on earth should I put my money in solar farm or wind farm if it's not going to have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, return on investment for me? So that's probably one of the biggest problems. Now... Uh, let's give you one um, side story here that you will see why developers are not very keen. Um, last year, there were like five, I believe, solar plants, solar farms in Australia, which had to cut their generation back to almost half in some particular regions in the Australian network because the grid was not strong enough to take that power mm. and actually send it to customers. So. When your grid is not strong enough, you have to cut back energy. Now, imagine that you've installed a solar farm somewhere and then initially you've invested X million amounts of dollars there and then you're expecting to have this return on investment because this particular solar farm can generate X amount of uh, energy for you. Now, if it is cut in half, by the operator of the grid, and if your mandate okay, you cannot uh, send more than this to the grid, you're losing money, actually. Because these farms, they've got a lifetime, they've got around 25 or 30 years, give or take, lifetime. So if, for example, for given amount of time, you cannot generate the full capacity, you're losing money, future developers won't be that interested. This is actually what is happening at the moment. Back in 2018, we had a very good um, and nice, steady rise in the amount of investment in this sector, 2019, it has actually dropped quite a lot. So 2019's investment was not as great as 2018. And all of this goes back to the financial aspect of things. The other point is that whether your grid is actually capable of taking this much of renewables and actually um, using this power or actually... Um, like sucking it up. Exactly. So... It's not always possible in every corner of the grid that you're looking at. In some parts, yes, it is possible. What are those parts? Parts which have access to very good infrastructure, parts which have access to very good transmission lines, high-capacity transmission lines, and your grid is strong. When I say strong, um, well, what do I mean? Um, For example, um, it's a very... Uh, maybe a naive analogy but maybe you've seen at home when you connect um, a fairly high power device let's say your uh, vacuum cleaner or maybe your iron sorry for example you connect it and, and you might notice a flicker in the light the light might go off for a tiny bit of like maybe half a second less than that and then goes back on it means that you're you're point of connection is not super strong. If a load is connected to it, there might be some fluctuations in the voltage of your grid. It's the same when you look at the massive scale for the grid. So in some parts of the grid, the transmission network, which is responsible for getting all the power from all large generation and sending it to um, load centers like cities, it's not great. The weaker your grid, the more difficult it is to get connected to the grid, the more difficult it is to get integrated to the grid.
0: So not only is it bad financially, like you said, for the investors, they're losing money, but it's bad environmentally as well because all this great natural renewable energy is being created that is essentially just being dumped and we are having to still rely on the old fossil fuel resources. So it's it's bad in, in both ways.
2: Uh, correct. The amount of renewable energies that we've got in a country like Australia is just massive. It is mind-blowing. Um, if we could, for example, uh, harness maybe one um, percent of that, that would be uh, m- more than sufficient for, for the whole nation. Um, I don't know the exact number, but you know, even one percent of the amount of solar irradiance in this country is just we are blessed with the with the solar irradiance in this country. We are blessed with wind wind resources. But again, yes, the the problem is lack of infrastructure, so we can actually uh, integrate those into the grid. Now, one, um, if I want to go um, and talk about the solutions for this, yeah, um, the solutions for this. Well, we are already. Uh, uh, in, in industry and in, in research sector, we are talking about some solutions for these weak networks and how we can help to make them stronger. One way is using the older technology. I told you synchronous machines, uh, which are the way that we actually uh, generate fossil fuel. We use uh, synchronous machines uh, along with fossil fuels to, um, to generate energy. One way is to have some of these synchronous generators in different parts of the grid, but not really for generating energy, but for maintaining that strength in the grid. So we don't have the problem of CO2 emission, uh, but we do have actually a strong grid. Then we can add more renewables to that. That's one way. That's a very old proven technology Doable. people are actually doing it in very weaker part of the network where you have difficulties adding more renewables. People are actually adding uh, these pretty old but proven technology and put it there. There are problems associated with that at the same time. One of them is that they are expensive. So if you can afford them, great. If your project is still financially viable with putting uh, these synchronous machines which do not generate any energy for you, and we call them synchronous condensers, or in short, syncons. Mm. If you can't afford syncons and you can't put it there and your project is still vi- financially viable, of course, people do it. Another problem with that, though, is that the lead time, if you wanna order one today, you, if you're lucky, you will get it in a year, if you're lucky, if everything goes well. So, two problems with this older solution. This is one solution, so if you can live with that, if you can live with the price and the lead time, and install in one place in the grid, of course, you can uh, further strengthen your grid and you can have more um, renewables installed in that particular location. So another technology which is coming along is another or new family of power electronic converters that as opposed to the previous family that I talked about for renewable energy uh, integration that would require a voltage to follow, this one can create a voltage itself for you. It can create a grid for you and we call them grid forming inverters. So you will have the best of both worlds. So you will have a power electronic converter that can connect your wind or solar farms to the grid and, reliably uh, generate renewable energy for you at the same time. It doesn't require a strong grid, but it itself generates a grid for you. It helps to to actually control the voltage and frequency of the grid and have a strong grid for you. So this is a newer technology and coming along, and we are hoping that this technology in future years can help us to uh, integrate more and more renewables more reliably in different parts of the network.
0: Do you think it's realistic? It sounds really promising because it sounds like it it does the job, but it also provides that scaffolding that's needed. Likely?
2: It is likely. It is likely. How long? Um, I'm hoping that this will be the state of the art in the next five years.
0: Do you think this is the direction the energy market is going? Do you get a sense in an ideal world the energy market wants to be going there? It's not sort of holding on with the death grip to fossil fuels?
2: My feeling is that we've got the technology, uh, we've got all the resources, everything is available, but it's a matter of time before we can convince ourselves that, look, enough is enough. We shouldn't actually um, rely on these fossil fuels And at some point, we will realize that they are generating so much trouble for us because, of course, yes, renewables might require, um, of course, they do require a lot of money, a lot of investment. But at some point, we might stop and ask ourselves, okay, the price we are paying for fossil fuels, one example, the bushfires, is it really worth it? to keep going with fossil fuel generation or should we more aggressively invest in renewables? Government should more aggressively, you know, I think governments shouldn't be um, passive or even active in this in this field, they should be proactive. You know, they shouldn't wait for a, a crisis to happen and say, okay, look, what should we do now? Should, how can we, for example, mitigate the, uh, the consequences? We should be proactive. We should actually we we can plan in advance and instead of waiting for a crisis to happen to spend money on fixing that problem i think we should go back to the roots of the problem and replace all of these fossil fuels as soon as we can
0: so where do you think the biggest push for change needs to come from is it government is it the 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 people? Is it the energy market?
2: I believe everybody. Everybody has a role to play in this. You know, it's not definitely a one-man show. Of course, some players have a bolder role here. Um, Us as individuals, we also have a role here to play. But if you wanna look at the mixture of the generation and the grid itself, of course the role of the government is the uh, boldest and they should play uh, the biggest uh, role here to encourage more developers to come along and invest more in this sector and create the infrastructure for that. Maybe um, like building a new transmission line, of course, not maybe, it is very costly, it is very expensive. But when you look into future 50 years from now, Will we regret the decision that we didn't um, invest more aggressively in this field? I think, yes, we will regret. If we don't create the infrastructure today, 20 years, 10 years, 30 years from now, might be very late. You know, uh, you probably are familiar with this um, story of boiling frog. You know, I very much hate if in 30, 40 years we wake up and see that we are that frog. Then are the boiled frog yes uh, because it happens so gradually climate change happens so gradually you know it is far beyond our um, understanding of um, you know phenomena in, in terms of time scale. It it happens very gradually. And catastrophic events they build up very gradually. Next year, unfortunately, if we have a, a bushfire maybe uh, half of the size of what we had this year, we probably won't be very much surprised because we saw this one and we are getting used to these catastrophic events. And that's the danger. Getting used to these catastrophic uh, events and reaching a point that there isn't any uh, return imaginable.
0: Are renewables a hundred percent reliable enough for us to go to them entirely?
2: Well, yes. Um, with, with the right technology, yes. With a mixture of different technologies, yes. Well, some people say that, for example, what if sun doesn't shine? What if the wind doesn't blow? What if this, what if that? So of course, uh, there are these scenarios that you can you can imagine, but the thing is, if you put all of them together, a mixture of hydropower, which also we have some in Australia, mixture of solar, wind, and of course, a little bit of fossil fuel as a reserve, just in case things go wrong. Of course, you can't keep them mm-hmm. as a reserve, just to use them if, if everything else goes wrong. 20 years from now, we could have a fully uh, renewable grid if we of course invest massively in this uh, in this area, we can have a fully renewable grid with battery energy storage, solar, wind and hydro, and in an, an unlikely scenario that the wind doesn't blow for a couple of days and sun doesn't shine for a couple of days. <laughs> it's dark and still for it's, four days. Exactly. So you could then rely on a reserve uh, fossil fuel generator sitting there and will only come into play if you really need it. But uh, it is doable. It is possible, and we can do it.
0: Beruz, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for your
2: time. No worries. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's hear from Roger Dargaville.
1: My name is Roger Dargaville, I'm a Senior Lecturer in Renewable Energy in the Civil Engineering Department of Monash University. My research focuses on designing optimal renewable energy systems, trying to work out how to minimise the variability in the output of wind and solar plant when they're aggregated over very large geographic regions.
0: Roger Dargaville, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. If we continue to adopt renewables at the rate that we are in Australia, is that going to be a problem?
1: Uh, it's not a problem. In fact, it's, it's important that it does happen. We're currently installing renewables at a, at a pretty good rate. So uh, rooftop PV is going in at about a gigawatt per year. A gigawatt is you know, the size of a, pa- a decent-sized power station. Uh, Hazelwood Power Station, which shut down a couple of years ago, that was 1.6 gigawatts. Okay. To put things in context. So we're putting up on the nation's rooftops the equivalent of a, a medium-sized coal-fired power station every year. So if we keep on doing that at current rates, we will we will decarbonize the, the electricity sector by 2040 or so.
0: And is that fast enough? No, that,
1: that's not fast enough. So we, we need about um, 100 gigawatts altogether – so we, we've okay. got about 20 gigawatts of renewables so far. So we need to build about another 80 and we need to do it by, well, it depends on, on what your target is. If we want to decarbonise rapidly and have it done by, say, twenty thirty five. so we've got 15 years, then you've got to do about three or four gigawatts a year. And
0: is that realistic?
1: It's very realistic. We, we've, we've done six gigawatts of renewables in one year. So 2017 was a really good year for renewables. We had the rooftop PV of a gigawatt. We built three gigawatts of uh, utility scale photovoltaics. so the big fields full of the, the PV uh, modules, and we did a, a, a bit over, or just just a bit under, two gigawatts of wind power as well. So all those things added together was pretty close to six gigawatts.
0: So it sounds like you're actually quite optimistic.
1: Things are going pretty well. Th- things are going in the right direction. They do, they do need to go faster. And 2017 was a special year because we had the end of the renewable energy target coming up. And so there was an incentive for the investors to get those projects done before the um, the carbon certificates, the renewable energy certificates ran out or, or, or were no longer available. So there was a big uptick in, in investment for that particular period. It um, so it settled back down to a more, a more typical level – and that's not enough to get us to where we need to be quick enough. But if the right policies are in place, if the right financial incentives are there, there's no technical reason why we can't do the, the transition in the time frame required.
0: And are the right policies in place for this to happen?
1: There, there aren't any policies in place, so no. <laughs> so that's a no. That's a no, <laughs> yes.
0: What would you like to see? What kind of policies – would you like to see but also do you think are actually realistic for, for our government and our nation? Yeah.
1: So by by far the best policy is the policy that actually targets the problem and the problem is carbon emissions so we want a, a price on carbon. So a, a, a disincentive for emitting carbon into the atmosphere so pricing every tonne of carbon goes into the atmosphere is the best way to, to disincentivize that. Now from a realistic point of view that might have been that's become too much of a poison chalice for the politicians to touch. So we might need other, other ways of doing it. Uh, a renewable energy target is a good way of doing it. But the, the, the objective is not to build renewable energy. That's the, the solution to the problem. We, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. That's, that's first and foremost. So you can actually inve- envisage a perverse scenario where you might build more wind and solar, but it might actually displace gas-fired or hydro-powered technology and leave the coal-fired generators running, in which case you haven't really reduced your emissions very much at all. So the the policies really need to be targeted at the the carbon emitters and and not at the, the green technologies.
0: So by targeting the carbon emitters, we want them to pivot to renewables or we just want them to shut down?
1: So depending on what kind of company you are, you, you may have the opportunity to, to change your business model and go move away from fossil fuels and uh, become a, a green energy company. Uh, if you're just a coal miner, then it's probably quite difficult to do. Uh, but for example, you know, one of the u- university's key research partners, Woodside, uh, at the moment is a fossil fuel company, but they have the ability to switch to, to hydrogen as being their um, energy vector. And, and as hi- in
0: being entirely... Hydrogen and moving away from coal?
1: Eventually, yes. So so that's that's the goal. It's one of the research projects we do with with Woodside looking at how they would completely redevelop their business to be a, a hydrogen exporter rather than a an LNG exporter.
0: We're living in strange times, you might have noticed. Yes. Do you think there will be any impact of COVID 19 on the desire for renewables, the role of renewables? I don't know, a lot of people are working from home now. Is there going to be a shift in energy needs? Yeah,
1: possibly. I mean, definitely um, transport uh, requirements could go down. We, we don't, I driving in this morning, the roads were pretty quiet. So Everyone's
0: working from home. Does that yeah. make a difference for generally homes during the day, there's not a lot of energy required of a house yeah. because people are out. With people working from home now, does that change anything?
1: I guess your home energy use might go up. So when you know the house might have been vacant before now, people are using it and having um, hundreds of thousands of homes being used as offices rather than office buildings might not be the most efficient use. You know, if you're in an office space, uh, you can put lots of people in the, that same space and not have to heat multiple um, rooms or cool them or, or have lights on. Um, yeah, hard to say. I, I, I haven't. I, I don't expect a big shift in, in the way we use energy because of the COVID nineteen.
0: Do you think there'll be a shift in the conversation around renewables, specifically because um, after the bushfires? there was a lot of talk about climate change and the impact. And this little window may have opened up where government and industry may have been a little more – and even the public who may have been sceptical about climate change might have been a bit more receptive to conversations about we really need to do something that was terrible. With COVID-19 happening, it's almost forgotten – The the attention has shifted so significantly. Do you think that will have a positive or a negative uh, impact on our discussions around renewables when at the moment everyone's just thinking about virus and economic shutdown?
1: I think it's definitely detracting from the the renewable problem and the climate change problem, and and probably rightly so. I mean, it it should be uh, front and centre for our attention because it's it's a very in-your-face kind of problem. What it might do is is shift the way that we look at scientific evidence for addressing global challenges like climate change and for adopting renewable energy. There's been a lot of problems with the climate change problem, especially that um, people don't accept the climate science, they uh, find it difficult to understand perhaps, they don't like the consequences of having to acknowledge the science mm. and so they, they prefer not to. If with with the bushfires and now the the COVID nineteen disaster, if people realise that you know science is actually really important and that the scientists are hmm. doing the right kind of work for the right kind of reasons, and we're not we're not trying to you know ha- have a a global conspiracy to to take down uh, capitalist governments, um, it, aren't it, you? No, uh, no, no. I'm too busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it might change the perspectives on how we deal with global problems. And and climate change, again, it's very much a global problem in the way that COVID-19 is very obviously a global problem. And an individual cl- country on its own can't solve anything. And what Australia does in terms of COVID-19 makes very little difference to what the rest of the world does. In much the same way that climate change, doesn't matter if Australia reduces its emissions very much in terms of what happens globally, but every country cumulatively their response makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So we we have to you know, think globally, act locally and, and and tackle these problems as a global community and, the, you know, the tragedy of the commons when you know, one one country or one jurisdiction doesn't pull its weight, it has a really big impact for everybody else on the planet.
0: Yeah, and it also gives other countries permission to themselves opt out.
1: We, we're often one of the you know, naughty parties that side with countries like Saudi Arabia and, and argue against stronger action on climate change. We, as a very vulnerable country to, to climate change, and we've seen that with the bushfire disaster, we should be one of the countries you know, begging the, the big movers like China and the US to do as much as they can to reduce their emissions. And the only way we can do that is by reducing our emissions our, ourselves. So it should be it's, – it's very much in our interests for us to maximise our efforts to reduce our emissions so that we can go to the rest of the planet and say – can we all work together to, to meet this really important goal?
0: Do you think there is a bit, a bit of um, political foot dragging in the area or is it just really complicated and maybe politicians are doing as much as they can?
1: I've, I've struggled to understand why politicians don't address this problem with the, the, the seriousness um, that it requires – I think there's, there's a mix of things. There, there is a lot of money involved. So the fossil fuel industry is obviously very wealthy and there's a lot of sunk investment in power stations and coal mines and infrastructure that if you move away from that, uh, companies will lose money. But the politicians, that, that shouldn't affect them too much except they get political donations and, and there's employment opportunities for, for politicians when they leave uh, parliament to go and work for these companies. Um, a lot of the people working in politics actually have come from the fossil fuel industry as well. So it's, there's a bit of a uh, rotating door there. Uh, it's not outright corruption, at least I hope it's not, but uh, who knows?
0: Mm. Um- do you think maybe there's a role for states to start doing their own thing and not wait so much for federal government uh, intervention? So
1: it's a reason to be optimistic, again, is the states actually are doing their own thing and every state now has a 100% renewable energy target by 2050, at least in in, in promise and, and in legislation in, in some states. And so the states are actually the main driver. So Victoria has reverse auctions. New South Wales is in the process of formulating how they're going to – Uh, hit their targets. What's a
0: reverse auction?
1: uh, So rather than providing um, a penalty for emitting carbon, the Victorian government provides a financial incentive or I guess it's a a cost recovery guarantee for building a new renewable energy plant. So they'll say, we want a gigawatt of wind. All the wind farm builders tell us what the cheapest is that you can build a wind farm for. And then they'll pick the... The cheapest option, so it's reverse auction because you go from cheapest to most expensive, mm-hmm. and and the the companies are bidding downwards. So they're saying, look, I, I can build it for a hundred dollars a megawatt hour, which is uh, the, the the way we measure how much it costs to produce renewable energy, and then their competitors will say, oh, we we can do it for ninety, and, and then they go back to the drawing board and they say, well, we've we've, uh, we've tweaked it a bit. We think we can still be profitable at eighty dollars a megawatt hour, mm-hmm. so forth until no one you can't go any lower, and the government says, okay, well that's the cheapest you get the contract to build that wind farm and we will guarantee that you get a return on your investment.
0: Do you think that is smart? Is there a risk with pushing industry to go as cheap as possible that perhaps um, it's not necessarily the best?
1: It's the way markets work. Whoever can provide a a product at the the cheapest rate will will get the business. So it's it's entirely consistent with the way – industry works anyway, so I don't think there's a problem. The the only risk is that when governments pick and choose which technology to build, where and when, that they may not pick the most optimal combination of technologies. And so, for example, if you had a centralised decision-making process where you pick where and when you build wind farms and solar farms, the answer might be the best thing to do is build wind farms in Tasmania and solar farms in Queensland – And yet Victoria will say, well, we're Victoria, so we want to have wind farms and solar farms built in Victoria. So you might end up with a sub-optimal solution. Mm -hmm. But honestly, at the end of the day, sub-optimal is a a a lot better than no solution, so we don't worry about that too much.
0: Roger, thank you so much. That was really interesting. It sounds like we're on the way. Let's hope we can get there fast enough. On the next episode, we'll have all the expert advice and tips on how to make renewables part of your life. Thanks to our guests today, Behrouz Behrani and Roger Dargaville. That's it for this episode. More information on what we discussed today can be found in the show notes.